Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, we are taking a look north of the American border at one of the most aggressively protectionist, legally enforced rackets, if that's the right word. It might not be, that until recently I had never heard of, and it exists in Canada of all places, a country primarily known for its open, welcoming, cosmopolitan disposition. The formal name of this insane system is supply management, and we're going to talk about it with George Pierks. He's a friend of the show, a Canadian himself. And the guy who first told us about this. Uh, but first, I'm joined for this episode in the studio by guest co-host Matt Klein, my colleague on Alphaville. Matt, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Matt, you have uh, an interest, um, I dare say it's an eccentric or at least an idiosyncratic interest in the Canadian economy. And on Fridays when we're all looking at um, the American jobs numbers, the first Friday of each month, you're sometimes writing about either the Canadian jobs numbers or like the tar sands or the Vancouver housing market. Uh, where did that come from? A couple of things. One is that of all the countries in the world, Canada is most like the U.S. So it's interesting as a point of comparison to see how they're doing. The other thing is just that not a lot of Americans cover it, but it's a country of 35 million people. So it's pretty significant. You know, think of the attention that's given to places that are a lot smaller, like Iceland or Sweden and Canada, quite frankly, deserves a lot more coverage. Okay. Awesome. Uh, and joining us on the line from his home in North Carolina is George Pierks, a macro strategist at Bespoke Investment, Canadian expat himself, and something of an economics blogger as well. George, uh, welcome to the show, man. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So this is kind of your debut. I think you were quoted in like a soundbite that Amy did at Camp Alphaville a little while ago, but this is your first formal appearance. It's about damn time. <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me on. It, it, it maybe has been a little bit too long, but I'm just happy to be here today. George, you first uh, pointed Matt and me in the direction of supply management uh, about a month ago. I was blown away uh, when you sent us uh, to the link explaining what it was. Uh, and that's when we first decided that we had to do a show about this. Uh, so for our listeners, especially our American listeners and maybe those overseas who have no idea what this is, despite how powerfully entrenched it is in Canada... Uh, tell us about it. What is it? Uh, and maybe give us a, a little bit of background on its origins and uh, you know how it came to be erected in the first place. Sure. So just a personal anecdote to start. My mom was born and raised in California. Uh, she met my dad in college and moved up to Canada with him in the mid-1980s. And one of the things she always said about Canada, she, she's a permanent resident in Canada. She's not a Canadian citizen. Uh, she's held her U.S. citizenship, which is one of the reasons I'm down here. Um, but one of the things she's always said she misses about the United States is how cheap milk and cheese are. Um, when she got to Canada and she started grocery shopping regularly, she was blown away by how expensive milk products were. And it just made no sense to her because Canada is obviously very similar to the United States in a lot of ways. It's a modern, developed democracy with um, a 
pretty diverse economy, lots of agriculture, and she just didn't understand why milk was so expensive. So the answer to this question is, is looking back to the 1940s and 50s when there was a series of very intense lobbying efforts by the milk industry, essentially, by dairy farmers to stabilize the price of milk. Um, what you saw in the pre-supply management era, which is what this system is now called, was very volatile production and very volatile prices. Milk has a very short shelf life. Obviously, it's it's not you know um, overnight, um, but generally speaking, the more uh, short shelf life is for commodities, the harder it is for financial markets and other people in the economy to sort of speculate and hedge and store and manage and smooth the supply and demand that way. It's 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 unlike oil, and we all know how volatile oil is. So milk prices were very volatile, and Canadian farmers didn't like that. So they engaged in an intense lobbying effort to protect the income stream that they earned from selling their milk, essentially. And that took a little while to spread across the entire country. Um, but by 1974, every province and the federal government, with the exception of Newfoundland, had signed on board to this system um, called supply management. Um, in 1972, eggs were added, turkey is part of it, chicken is part of it, and hatching eggs are also part of it since the 1980s. The basic idea is that farmers should receive a quote-unquote fair revenue stream and a fair price for the milk that they produce, and that the volatility shouldn't be so much that farmers are seeing booming prices one year and crashing prices the next. And so this is accomplished by a series of tariff uh, quotas. Um, so it's it, there are only a certain amount of milk products that can be imported into the country before 200 plus percent tariffs kick in, and then also a system of quotas for domestic production, as well as guaranteed minimum prices for um, milk solids and for butter, and um, also um, a sort of uh, industry-run group that, that recommends changes to all this to manage the cost of milk over time. Um, and, of course, there are also some things that do benefit consumers about the system. For instance, um, quality standards are something that, that are a part of it. We'll get into later, I think, whether that makes the system worth it or not. But there are some benefits to this sort of very cumbersome planned production, essentially. Um, you can't just go out and buy a dairy cow and start farming in Canada. You have to... Um, get the license for that cow, essentially. And what that means is cows are ex extraordinarily expensive because they're, the revenue from those cows in the form of milk products is, is guaranteed. So you get this sort of situation where they're, regardless of the consumer demand side of the equation, the supply is quite fixed and quite tightly managed to benefit farmers. Yeah, the central planning component of this is really what kind of stands out. The pricing is centrally planned. The, the production discipline, as it's called, the idea uh, that farmers or farming companies get their market share determined by either this lobbying group or they determine it among themselves, but it's not like they're all competing for more market share, either by lowering prices or raising quality or whatever. And then obviously uh, the tariffs. I mean, is that essentially um, uh, how you describe this system? Those are the central components to the system. Yeah. And it's really easy to see in sort of the structure of the dairy herd. So for instance, in all of Canada, the average size dairy herd is only 82 cows. Um, in Quebec, it's 61 cows. So there, there are these very small, small herds of cattle run by independent farmers because coming up with the capital to invest in a massive 
um, centralized herd operation like we've seen sort of happen in the United States. The, the share of dairy herds that are 500 or greater cattle has risen significantly over time in the United States because there are some benefits to being larger. In Canada, it, it's not like that at all. It's essentially a cottage industry, and that does have some consequences for, for productivity, although they're not they're not massive from, from the data I was able to find. Sure. And I, I think it sort of becomes intuitive then uh, how this would affect pricing and how hard it would be for prices to fall to where they would be otherwise if foreign uh, producers were allowed into the Canadian market a little bit more so. Uh, I actually asked Matt to do a little bit of research on this um, before our chat and to kind of put some of this into the context of like the wider uh, Canadian economy. Uh, Matt, you want to add anything to what George just said uh, and maybe do um, exactly that? Tell us how big a deal this is uh, sure. for the Canadian economy. So Canadian uh, household consumption is about a little over a trillion Canadian dollars. Of that, food is around 100 billion, uh, and then uh, the categories that are covered here, namely poultry and eggs and milk, is, is something like 10% of that. So it's a relatively small piece of total consumption, which is you know an argument you could make for saying it doesn't necessarily matter much. On the other hand, this is sort of the argument that the, the Larry Summers dismisses when talking about you know the impact of financial crises, where if you look at the, the final consumption, it doesn't necessarily tell you things. If you look at, say, electricity consumption, that's not very big either. But if all the electric power went out, you would notice. Uh, so if if milk and, and other sort of valuable proteins are that much more difficult to access for Canadians, that could be a real cost that's not reflected in the, the share of the consumption basket. Yeah, and that's before getting to, obviously, to either distributional issues or issues of equity, right? right. In other words, that this is a particular part of the Canadian economy that's protected, right. and the higher price falls on, well, uh, proportionally on people who struggle to afford these in, kinds of basic items in, right. in general. In general, I mean, the, the share of income you spend on food goes up as your income goes down because you obviously, you, everyone needs food. Uh, so if you have less money for spending on luxuries, you're going to devote more to that. So the fact that, you know, these kinds of proteins are actually very good to be having, at least, you know, moderate quantities, the fact that they're so expensive could be very bad for poor Canadians. Okay. Uh, George, I had a, uh, another follow-up question on what you said about um, about your mother's experience. Um, she obviously had that point of comparison between the U.S., where she was coming from, and then what she encountered in Canada. I guess uh, I'm wondering to what extent your friends and family who didn't come from the U.S. originally, your Canadian friends and family, to what extent uh, is this like a source of frustration for them? Like, Do they understand how this works, and do they talk about it sometimes and think, God, this is kind of stupid. Like, do you do you see some of these stories in the press played out in real life where like restaurants aren't serving cheese or some Canadians are crossing the border into the U.S. to buy milk? Because uh, some of this stuff is kind of insane. I guess I'm just wondering, in Canadian daily life, do people notice this and do they do they say, what the hell is going on here? Well, so getting sort of to what uh, had been said by Matt, it's a really small part of everyone's consumption basket. And there are regressive distributional consequences for having a sort of floor under the price of this stuff. Day to day, though, for the vast majority of people, it's probably not going to move the needle. I mean, you, you don't see Canadians running into the US to buy, you know, 100 gallons of milk and take it back in their trunk and arbitrage the border <laughs> through underground trade like that. There's no secret pipeline of uh, dairy moving north across the Canadian border. Um, I, you know, I think you definitely do see a focus on it in some context. So for instance, when I was in high school, I used to work in the kitchen of a bar and, um, I can remember my boss saying, oh, you know, like this silly customer is complaining about, um, how big the nachos are and, um, how the nachos are too small. Like how much do tortilla chips cost? And my boss went off like, yeah, he has no idea about the cheese though. That's what really costs a lot. 
And that's true in the U.S. too, of course. Tortilla chips versus cheese. Cheese is going to be a lot more expensive. But you know, I, I don't think it's something that's super prevalent in the in the body politic up there as a specific issue. I think Canadians in general are much less paranoid about the sort of creep of central planning into the economy than you see in the United States. And and paranoid is sort of a loaded term. But down here, I mean, we really do have a focus on this kind of stuff as, or at least have for the past 30 odd years as, as sort of an automatic negative thing that needs to be guarded against at all costs. Um, it's true in other industries too. So for instance, the maple syrup industry in Canada is run by what amounts to a cartel. Um, again, very small part of GDP. Um, but you know, uh, everyone knows Canadians produce a lot of maple syrup relative to other countries. Um, healthcare is another example. So, um, provinces are single payers for healthcare expenses. So, you know, that, that sort of interjection of the government into the, into the economy is something that most Canadians think is the obvious solution. Um, single payer healthcare is regarded as just this no brainer in Canada versus here, where it's sort of viewed as this horrible creep of socialism into free, into a free democracy. So there are some different attitudes. And I think that definitely helps sort of keep this as a non-scandal as it were, but the, but the prices are a lot higher. So um, I took a look around on the internet and, and this isn't super scientific, but roughly the average price of a gallon of milk in Canada right now is $6.27 US. That compares with like $3.45 US on a comparable basis or $4.03 um, in US dollars uh, in France. So, you know, you have to go to a place like Norway where it's $7.30 for a gallon of milk or New Zealand, $7 for a gallon of milk um, to find sort of- New Zealand? Yeah, to find sort of prices that are- that They're are, like the Saudi Arabia of milk. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm not exactly sure what the deal is there. I didn't spend a huge amount of time digging into the New Zealand dairy industry, but they're big exporters. I'm not really sure why domestically consumed milk is so expensive there. But in any event, there aren't many countries, especially not many countries that have huge amounts of land mass and are close to, you know, sort of the um, one of the largest milk producers in the world in the United States and have liberal trade regimes like, you know, if you're a developed country, you're paying a lot less for milk in most cases than Canadians are. So uh, it is interesting that it sort of just slides under the radar. I should note that uh, when you said uh, north of six dollars for a gallon, my eyes actually popped. You mentioned working in a restaurant. Uh, the Canadian restaurant lobby actually does make a fair amount of noise about this because they're obviously on the other side of it, right? Yeah. Um, they're yeah. the ones who have to pay higher prices for their inputs, and then they obviously they're going to pass along some of that uh, to consumers. So I guess my question here is, like, why, other than the reason of path dependence, would Canadian farmers like deserve this kind of treatment relative to other Canadian industries that are hurt by it, right? Because it's not... If if Canadian productivity were so great, then you wouldn't really need something like this. Uh, and if it's not so great, then why why have a policy like this uh, at the expense of other Canadian industries? Like it seems like a fundamental point of fairness as, as well. In addition to protecting like you know a longstanding uh, group with a powerful lobby. Yeah, and I mean you see the same sort of thing in a lot of democracies where you get this sort of well, there's no better explanation for this than path dependency. I mean, I can understand the original lobbying effort by Canadian farmers to sort of suppress the volatility in the price of milk, and they've been quite successful in doing that in terms of volatility of both production and 
um, volatility of prices. Um, so it's understandable where it came from. It's not entirely clear what the original politics of this was. You know, here in the United States, something like corn gets huge subsidies, and we don't really think about it in terms of consumer um, prices or, or the operation of a monopoly. But but it is a, an issue that you know, why does corn get such huge subsidies when we are such a good producer of it without those subsidies? Rice might be another example in the United States. So you know, I, I think a lot of these sort of political economy questions of why and how. Um, really do boil down to path dependency. I mean, it, it, it's just almost impossible to argue that this is a 21st century policy in a modern economy, especially one that's as developed as Canada's. And you do see the occasional newspaper columnist pushing back on it or something to that effect, but there's really no political will to sort of do something about it because it's been there for 40 years. And really, if you look at the consequences of it, yeah, I mean, they're, they're not good. I, I wouldn't argue that they're good, but Canadian productivity in terms of milk production per cow is pretty much keeping up with the United States, especially after you adjust for differences like weather and that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where it's like it's a bad policy, but it's not a big enough bad policy for people to get all up in arms about it. Um, and the combination of Canadian sort of approaches to um, the management of the economy by the government and the fact that it was introduced so long ago and is a relatively small part of budgets just means that people just sort of eat it and say, oh, well, whatever, um, which is really interesting. That's a good point, uh, not only about the cultural acceptance, which is sort of part of you know the way that every country's politics works, but also about how, how other developed economies also pursue something similar. Um, though, Matt, uh, a lot of other developed countries also do it a little bit differently. Like here in the US, as George just noted, we tend to do it through channeling subsidies, right? right. Europe, I think, does the same thing along with some protectionist policies. Uh, Canada does it a little bit differently. It doesn't channel the money to them directly. It instead enforces this policy of restricted production. I will say in the U.S., though, there was a case, I think it was just very recently that the, the courts overturned it, but a situation where it was raisin production, actually, there were quotas. And if you produced a surplus, the government would actually take the raisins and destroy them. Uh, so this that, was in the U.S.? This was in the U.S. It was just a couple of years ago that it was tossed. I think the Supreme Court, not positive on that, it was one of the high courts basically was challenged as policy, but it was it was established during the 30s. So Canada's not unique. I guess my question, sort of looking at the other side of this, is why is it only these industries in agriculture that Canada has under supply management? The, you, you could imagine there being others that would have wanted to get in on the system. I mean, if poultry has it, why not beef, for example? Do you have any insight in that, George? I don't have especially close insight on that. I mean, I think part of it is the raw economics of how certain commodities are, as I mentioned earlier, are produced, stored and consumed and how that's all intermediated. So the most volatile commodity you can find is electricity because it's either there right now or it's not at all. So if you have quite inelastic demand, then the price is going to have to move very large amounts to sort of shut it off. You can't warehouse electricity. Much less elastic commodities like gold, you can store gold in a warehouse for years and years and years, and the same with copper or some other hard metals. So you see just sort of dramatically less day-to-day -day volatility because there's this buffer supply of speculation, either long or short, that can kind of come in and intermediate the supply and demand. So milk is sort of more towards the electricity side of things. You know, there's a decent amount of lead time for it. For instance, you need to buy feed for the coming year. You need to plan the number of cows you have. But then you have this product that's quickly spoiled. Um, here in the United States, that sort of volatility is regulated through two kind of channels. The 50% the of the 
retail cost of milk goes to marketing and distribution. So you have these collectives that are voluntary, entirely private market that are buying from dairy farmers and then pooling the milk and um, can provide a little bit of that buffer capacity. In Canada, that system probably would have evolved similar to the United States in terms of the development of new refrigeration technology, uh, more advanced supply chain logistics, that sort of thing. But because the government stepped in in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it didn't ever organically grow up that way. And it, they've sort of supplanted this this system in the United States for their own, which, I, you know, I, I mean, so I, I think the, the question as to beef um, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I, I think you'd have to get a someone who knew a lot about the cattle industry in Canada and had done a bunch of research on that to sort of talk. I'm sure there have been efforts by the cattle industry to introduce something similar. And I'm sure that um, there have been efforts by other industries as well. But it really it just comes down to the path dependence. So, you know, when this was originally passed in the 1970s, there may have been a you know significantly powerful member of parliament whose district produced a lot of butter or something like that. And again, many examples in the United States. By the way, the United States also does supply management of dairy. Just recently, the U.S. government had to buy, I think it was 20 million pounds of cheese to be handed out to food banks because there had been such a glut of milk that resulted in overproduction of cheese and crashing cheese prices as well as crashing dairy prices. Dairy prices dropped in the United States by 40% in less than two years recently. So I, I think governments everywhere do this. The remarkable thing with Canada is that it's so explicit, it's so ingrained in the industry, and it's sort of so accepted by the population. And most of the time, I think that's more of a cultural thing than like a truly economic uh, decision. There is uh, kind of an interesting contrast here, though, uh, George, between this system and Canada's widespread cosmopolitan reputation, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, certainly, that's the impression that we as Americans have of Canada. I think it's also uh, it's also a reputation that Canada has, I think, cultivated over time. Um, and it, it sort of seems like a dichotomy. I, I, I don't have any like question on this. I don't even have a wider point. It's just interesting that Canada, when it pursues free trade agreements, for instance, will often mention, hey, listen, if you can't do a free trade deal with us. Who can you do it with, right? Uh, and yet this system, this very aggressively protectionist uh, and well-ingrained system still exists there. Yeah. I mean, I think this is this is true across a number of different aspects of Canadian culture. And it's one of those quirks that you kind of only pick up on, you know, living in a place or spending a lot of time around a place. Um, I think I think Canadians definitely do have a certain self-perception and they do are, are sort of conscious in marketing that self-perception, both to them, to each other and to the world as a whole. And to be totally clear, Canada is an extremely metropolitan or cosmopolitan place. I mean, it is highly diverse. There has been large influxes of a variety of different immigration flows in, in recent history and throughout its history. Um, it's a very strong institutional democracy like, like the United States or um, other developed countries. It's got a very open economy in many respects. Um, and so it, I, I don't know, I don't think it's fair to necessarily condemn Canadians over milk, but, um, I, I think it is interesting where sometimes you can find these sort of inconsistencies, whether it's with milk or maple syrup or what have you in the sort of approach versus the perception. Um, so it's, it's fun to look at. Yeah, that's a good point because it could be precisely because that reputation is mostly deserved that a system like this stands out so much, right? Because it is so, it does provide that contrast. Um, quick question, Matt, on the economics. Uh, you did a little bit of digging into uh, Canadian production uh, of milk and I think um, of poultry. What did you find? So, I mean, there have been some ups and downs, but 
uh, as of the latest data we have, which I believe is from 2015, the volume of milk in liters is based in Canada that was produced is essentially the same as it was in 1969. Admittedly, overall milk consumption has fallen in the U.S. and in Canada. So in a per capita basis, you actually see relatively similar trends, which is, to be honest, I was, I was not expecting that. Right. Um, and you see similar uh, per capita consumption trends for chicken as well, where they both uh, basically doubled. Um, over kind of the past 40 years or so. So it, it's an interesting question to the extent to which this has actually affected what people do in, in volume terms. Yeah, some of that is uh, demand-driven then too. And some right. of that is just like a sociological thing. Yeah, right. Whatever whatever works on, I mean, basically people on both sides of the border seem to have relatively less appetite for milk than they did in the past, a lot more for chicken. And even despite the various differences in production and, and pricing, it doesn't seem to have affected it that much. Okay. It's also interesting, too, I, I took a look at some of the productivity stats. So the U.S. milk cow herd is is almost exactly the same multiplier larger than um, the Can or the U.S. population is versus Canada. So there are about 9.3 million dairy cows in the United States versus 9, 960,000 in Canada. Um, on a per cow basis, um, a U.S. dairy cow in 2016 produced 27, call it 2,800 gallons of milk versus 22 and 2,250 for um, Canada. So there is lower productivity. Of course, keep in mind, Canadian winters are a little bit harsher, so you might not get as much production in that sense. And that's a real thing, by the way. Um, that's one of the reasons for the policy originally being introduced was to protect Canadian farmers in the colder northern environment. This was like a stated thing it was concerned with. But in terms of productivity, so from 1998 to 2015, 1998 was just the easiest place to find comparable um, data going back to. The Compound annual growth rate for per cow production in, in the United States was 1.6%, and it was 1.8% uh, in Canada. So, you know, in terms of productivity, it, it's not entirely clear that looking at individual cows that this is this is suppressing the, the the dairy industry you know in terms of the size of the herd and the distribution of herd across a number the number of families and that kind of thing maybe a different story as i mentioned very small dairy herds in canada but it's it's not immediately obvious to me that this has had really bad consequences for for productivity of the dairy herd the difference primarily manifests in the price in other words. Right, exactly, rather than the volume. Final topic here, uh, let's talk about uh, how this affects Canadian foreign policy and specifically uh, trade deals. Every once in a while, some U.S. congressman will send a letter up to Canada saying, you know, how dare you and you should take this down. And then Canada will respond by, you know, with charges of hypocrisy and saying we won't be bullied into anything or whatever. Which, by the way, is a very Canadian thing. Canadians hate to be pushed around by the big brother on the southern side of the border. That is like a classic Canadian response and and understandable, really, if you think about it. Yeah, I, I think it is understandable. You'll you'll occasionally, though, get, uh, I guess, what you might call a more sober complaint from like the Australians, from New Zealand, from Europe, essentially saying that we've deregulated some of our agricultural sectors. Why don't you guys do the same thing? Uh, and that it has to be part of any potential trade deal. And I think Canada has made some arrangements to start to kind of slacken supply management or at least reduce its impact and allow for some foreign producers in if these trade agreements go through. How big of a deal do you think this is going to be in terms of holding up uh, trade agreements and just Canadian foreign policy overall, George? I, I don't think it's going to be a huge deal. I mean, I, I think that it will be used as a bargaining chip in in any trade negotiation with a major dairy producer going forward. But if you look at a place like the United States, which is going to be where the primary flow of of dairy comes from, if you start seeing imports to Canada, you know, 
we were already we already have free trade nailed down with NAFTA, and it's been that way for 20 years. There aren't going to be huge changes to the bilateral trade relationship between the United States and Canada anytime soon, um, I don't think. So, you know, well, a certain presidential candidate might disagree, but but that's that's the story for another day. It did come up as part of TPP negotiations, but it it was resolved. And, you know, you've sort of seen similar stuff go on elsewhere as well. Um, for instance, the European Union and Canada. So, you know, the modern system of global free trade is is not actually a system of global free trade. It's a system of bargaining chips. Some countries do a lot to protect certain industries and say, OK, well, in exchange for letting us protect our dairy cows, we'll give you um, a big concession on lumber or something like that, right? So that sort of system of deals is actually very complex and and isn't a super stable equilibrium. So I, I think that um, that's sort of a misconception around around free trade is that free trade is is like any other human activity at a, at a big scale. It's it's horse trading, right? Um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and the methods of back scratching differ a lot. Um, so I think, you know, if Canada wants to continue to shelter the dairy industry, they'll be able to do it. It's a question of what they're willing to give up to do it and how much other people are going to demand for open markets in that respect. Matt, what do you think? Certainly a, a reasonable belief. I mean, one thing that that's interesting is that despite the system of quotas and so forth, Canadian imports of dairy have actually gone up significantly over the past just 10 years. What what exactly the cause behind that, I don't know, but that's something that the you know Canadian Dairy Information Center has been been publishing, and it sort of suggests that there maybe there is some appetite for relaxing. If you know there can't, if production already is at sort of the peak level, and if demand for milk relative population keeps either going up or you know flatlining, then you can imagine a situation where they're going to be much more receptive to imports. Okay, I should note by the way that we have reached out to the Dairy Farmers of Canada, the lobbying group, also to the Canadian Trade Ministry. For a comment, uh, they probably aren't going to tell us anything that you can't find online about this, uh, but if they do get back to us, we'll read their comment in a future edition uh, of Alpha Chat. Uh, thanks for the chat, guys. This was great. Um, but before we let you go, uh, let's do long-form recommendations for our listeners. Uh, George, you're our guest. Uh, why don't you go first? Sure. So my recommendation is this fantastic article um, from Bloomberg by uh, Shannon Pettipis and David Voriakos. I think that's how you pronounce that last name. Sorry, David, if I mispronounce that. Um, it's called Walmart's out-of-control crime problem is driving police crazy. And it's about this sort of interaction between Walmart and its community in the form of crime. Um, Walmart stripped a huge amount of investment out of its stores in the mid 2000s uh, as a way to pursue higher profitability, higher sales per employee. There were fewer greeters. There were fewer uh, employees per square foot of, of retail space. Stores were all open 24 hours. And that sort of drew in petty criminals. And with petty criminals have come more serious criminals. So um, Walmart is now sort of working to address this. Uh, but it's not really working yet. We'll see if that maybe changes. And so this is just a great piece sort of looking at the the human side of sort of big corporate policies and how they impact not just the profitability of companies, but also how those companies work with their communities on stuff that really shouldn't have anything to do with what they report in terms of EPS every quarter, but in fact is very important for society as a whole. So great read. Definitely go check that out. It's fascinating. Uh, you said that was on Bloomberg, right? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, Matt? Uh, I just finished reading a book called The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke from the Sublime and the Beautiful Until American Independence by David Bromwich. And it's it's a fascinating book of of history and of understanding ideas of the time. I think 
A lot of people, to the extent they have a view on what Burke thought, is mostly based on his reaction to the French Revolution at the very end of his life, and they think that he's sort of the original conservative, railing against all change and so forth. What's interesting from this book, which admittedly focuses on an earlier part of his life, but really up until 1783, is A, he was a much more complex thinker than people give him credit for, or a lot of people give him credit for, I should say, and also that as his history as a politician, he was consistently on the side of what you know, from the 18th century perspective, you might think of sort of the liberal reformer, whether it is going uh, after abuses in the empire or trying to improve the power of parliament against the king, um, things like that. And and he he does this in a way that I think is very interesting, looking a lot at, at letters of correspondence as well as all of his published speeches and, and so forth. So it's a very interesting text uh, if you're interested in 18th century history or philosophy or politics, things like that. Yeah, that's good because a lot of people, I think, uh, kind of reflexively refer to moderate conservatives nowadays as Burkean conservatives, right? So anything that kind of adds a little bit of nuance about what he actually thought of, uh, I think is helpful. Uh, George, do you consider yourself to be Burkean? Oh, I don't know. I'm just right down the middle. I just look at I just look at data and apply theory and that's it. Okay, that that could maybe be a modern Burkean type. Is that is that Burkean? I don't know. I didn't read the book. I'm looking at Matt. My recommendation uh, is a BBC podcast called The Human Zoo. Uh, it's all about psychology. It's uh, It focuses a lot on the psychology of decision making. Um, it's in many ways like NPR's Invisibilia, which I've recommended on this show before, except it focuses more on the interviews with the actual psychologists and less on narrative storytelling. Obviously, both approaches have their advantages and disadvantages. This is a really good one to, I think, round out uh, the more narrative podcast, long-form podcast that uh, a lot of people like to listen to these days. Um, it's with a bunch of British dudes usually, you know, so it's uh, it's also quirky and understated and has a lot of humor. So yeah, definitely uh, check it out. Okay, we're done. George Pierks, macro strategist at Bespoke. You were great, man. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on. I hope you'll be back. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, guys. Matt Klein, we'll see you here uh, sometime in the near future. Absolutely. And also, like, since you're sitting right in front of me at my desk a little bit later on today. To our listeners, give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is a U.S. number for our listeners overseas, so the country code is plus one. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Please find us on iTunes. Rate the show. It really does help people find out about us. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Matt is at M underscore C underscore Klein. And George is at George Pierks. That's last name P-E-A-R-K-E-S. Thanks, as always, to our favorite Canadian import, even ahead of George Amy Keene, the producer and editor of this podcast. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.